we can kind of protect ourselves. Because, yeah, I said a lot of words. Let's, let's not pretend that. When it comes to American life and culture, love is everywhere. Love wins. Love is love. Love is in every song. And so when God speaks to us mainly, his people, but when he speaks to the world, love. The world's like, what are you talking about? We love. You say love. We must be on the same page because we say love and God is love and this must all work out great. Unless God means something radically different by love than the world means when it says the same word. And I think like husbands and wives are on very different pages when it comes to we talked. God and the world are on very different pages when it says, when he says, I am love, love. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're in our last kind of couple weeks of summer series. We'll get back into Hebrews mid to late uh, August after everybody kind of gets back and settled in. So we're going to be in Ephesians 5, and I apologize to some of my college class because you're getting take two. Um, went through this in Sunday school a week or two ago, and it just kind of stuck. So I thought, you know what, this is, this is a conversation I want to have with, with the church as well. And so, uh, you know, if you feel like you need to leave and do something else, then don't. Uh, so Ephesians 5, 1 through 20 is where we'll be. Uh, and Ephesians talks just mainly about, or the, the big theme of Ephesians is that, that God's redemptive plan is putting a diverse group of people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language into this one new humanity, this one new body called the church. And he's doing that for the purpose of his glory, right? To him be glory in his church now and forever. And so God is taking diverse people, putting them into one new thing, one new humanity called the church, and he's doing that by saving them by grace, through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. He's doing that by the blood of his cross. He's doing that by taking people who were once dead in their sins and trespasses, making them alive together with Christ, and immediately after that, as we talked about earlier in the summer, immediately after that, placing them into this new body by removing all the things that kept them apart. Right? So it's salvation leading to a new group called the church, the redeemed people of God, for the glory of God. Well, that's chapters 1 through 3. And just as Paul normally does in his letters in chapters uh, 4 through 6, he gives the practical implications of what it's like to live in this new diverse community of redeemed people called the church with real people in a real local church with real challenges of living life together as opposed to this theological thing called the church that is the background for it. But what you see in this is that who we are in Christ and what Christ has done is what drives how we then live in Christ. And so he makes us something new and then calls us to live in a new way. And we're going to see that in the, in the passage today. He structures four through six around five uses of the word walk. We walk in unity. We walk in holiness. We walk in love. We walk in light. We walk in wisdom. And so that's the structure. The pattern of our life changes when we meet Christ. The pattern of our life changes when we enter this thing called the church. And so uh, today we're going to be looking at love. And love is a challenge. It always has been a challenge, but it's an especial challenge today. We don't even know how to define it. We chase after it. We struggle to feel it. Right? 
Um, we struggle to define it. Love is a challenge in, in the culture we're living in. Um, as a single, we're seeking it out, and if we could just find love, it would complete us. As married people, we live in a marriage and we don't feel it. Like, where's the love gone from our marriage? We struggle with this thing called love. But the truth sets free, and the truth is this. You are fully, completely, and perfectly loved by God. You're empowered to love every single person around you. And that's why Jesus could say, love your enemies. Why? Because you were an enemy, and God so perfectly loved you in the cross. You can go love. And so the truth is going to set you free to love your spouse, even if you don't feel love or get love from them. The the truth is going to set you free that you can experience the fullness of love and intimacy in a relationship with Christ until and if he provides you with a physical expression of that in a marriage relationship. Since we're perfectly loved, we're freed to love other people. So let's look at it in in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to get our definitions of love right. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. They're out of place. But instead, there should be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father, we bow and we ask for your word to get deep into us. Lord, it's so easy for us to not be loving and to call it love. So easy for us to to miss the fullness and the richness and the flourishing of a life of love for you and a life of love for other people. So easy for us to explain away the things in our own lives, and it's so easy for us to find the fault and the problems in other people's lives, and we need Jesus Christ to rescue us again and again and again. We need the love of Jesus to fill us, God, because earthly relationships let us down. We need the love of Jesus to be beyond what we can comprehend because there's loss that some of us have faced, and there's distance some of us live with, 
And there's hurt and betrayal that some of us wrestle through. And we need the perfect love, the love of Jesus Christ that we couldn't possibly comprehend to be a love that fills us up, that lets us keep loving and never pull back. And so help us, God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the point today, you are loved, walk in love. You are loved, walk in love. And so kind of how I'm going to break down this passage, and if you saw 20 verses, you may freak out if you've been with me long enough to think, like, that's going to be a three-hour sermon. So we're going to do it a little differently. We're not going to go word by word and phrase by phrase. What I want to do is I want to give the negative side of love that is unloving or lovelessness, because I want to diagnose the symptoms of the disease. And then I want to give the positive sides of love because the Christian life is not just things not to do. It is a positive, righteous life to live. And so I want to give you the corresponding, here's what love looks like tangibly. And I want to interplay between those two things uh, today. And so the first point is going to be negative. It is not so that I feel guilty and beat myself up and preacher, you stepped on my toes. Because that happens week in and week out. And you tell me week in and week out, but I don't really care if it stepped on your toes. I care if it changed your heart. Right? I care if it actually exposed something to the Spirit's gaze that he pulled out and put the cross of Jesus over it. And so the goal is not to feel guilty. Unless that guilty drives, guilt is a, it, it diagnoses the disease of your heart that drives you to the cure of the cross of Christ. And so we want to expose the symptoms so that we get the right diagnosis because the cure is found in the cross of Christ that's available to you and it's available to me. So let's look at it as we jump in. Reject the symptoms of a loveless heart and culture. Reject the symptoms of a loveless heart and culture. And so uh, if you're a parent, you've had this, your kid wakes up, and I just don't feel good. And if you lately, in the past couple of years, have had roommates, they have probably come into the living room and said, ah, I just just don't feel right. I don't feel good, right? Uh, Or maybe your spouse has done it. You're like, what's going on? What's wrong? And, oh, man, I got a little bit of a headache, and I just kind of feel off, and maybe my throat's a little scratchy. Well, you should should lay down and rest a little bit, and then we'll, we'll check on you a little later, and then a little later in the day, how are we doing? And, oh, man, I feel worse. I think I got a little bit of a fever, and, you know, I'm just not feeling good. Well, what else is going on? Well, come to think of it, I can't smell, and I can't taste, and now all of a sudden, bingo, we know what we're dealing with, right? Oh, that's COVID, right? As the symptoms increase, the diagnosis gets a little more clear, right? So what are the symptoms of American life and culture? What are the symptoms of the church? What are the symptoms of our marriage and our own lives? And the more we see the symptoms, the more we're able to get a proper diagnosis of what's needed. And so as you look out over American life and church life, what do we see? We see rampant tribalism. We've got red versus blue. We've got old versus young. We've got those evil rich people. And us, poor people who don't have enough. We've got, um, you know, Um, ethnic group versus ethnic group. We've got all of these different factions warring against each other. We, We cancel each other, and you have no right to speak if you think this way, and you have no right to speak if you think that way. What's the diagnosis? We have a culture that has hypersexualized everything from little children in their, you know, dance uniforms on Netflix to, you know, to sell a car. Everything is hypersexualized. What's the diagnosis of of this stuff, and the way we speak to each other, right? It's absolutely atrocious the way we, we would speak to each other, right? Violent crimes are up. 
riots are up, right? The, the, the amount of venom between people, the, how easy people get offended and like go beat up a McDonald's worker because their hamburger was wrong. People have gone nuts. I mean, we, were, we were on our way to the beach, and this isn't in my notes, so it's free. Uh, we were on our way to the beach, and we stopped at McDonald's. Don't ask me why. One of the kids wanted McDonald's. None of the others did, and we went to McDonald's uh, along with two other restaurants. This is, this is life. And we're sitting there. We're the second in line. We're sitting there at the window, and all of a sudden, the window worker and some lady in the back that you can't see start cussing each other out right there, and they fight for like 15 minutes while we're waiting. And then this other guy walks by, and I'm like, dude, can I have my food? And uh, he's like, oh, yeah, here it is. It's been sitting in the window the whole time while they fought. What in the world is the diagnosis when the world is this crazy over nothing? The diagnosis is simple. We're a loveless people. And I wish it was out there as bad and in here as good. But you know that's not true, right? Out there is bad, and in here is bad, too. And so what does it look like in our churches? What does it look like <clears throat> in the churches we're a part of? Old versus young. What does it look like in the churches we're a part of? Ever heard of the thing gossip? I know that's an acceptable sin that you're allowed to get away with, especially if it's a prayer request. But it's a sin. We gossip about each other. And, man, it's so easy to criticize people that make decisions, and we criticize them. What's the diagnosis? Loveless and unloving people. And then we have marriages that have turned into roommates living together who occasionally get together to schedule plan the events of their kids. And what's the diagnosis? We're loveless and we're unloving. And so here's the truth. The further America gets away from any connection to the remnants of God, God is love, right? It's not a bumper sticker. That's what we're told theologically is true. Essential to his nature is love. God is love. So the further America gets away from any semblance of connection to God, who is love, lovelessness increases. We become more unloving. They're bad. We're good, right? No. The further we get away from intimacy and pursuit of God as a church, of course you see a ramp up of unloving and loveless behavior. And then what do we diagnose in our marriages if they're loveless, if they've lost that loving feeling? More than a feeling, right? The ultimate cure and the ultimate diagnosis is pro or the ultimate diagnosis is probably, and if we get the diagnosis right, we can get the cure right. The further I get away from intimacy with Jesus Christ, the further I will get away from sacrificial love, the way God defines it, for my spouse. We have loveless marriages because we have people who are not deeply and intimately in love with Jesus reflecting that into their marriages. What's the diagnosis? We're loveless. What's the cure? The cross of Jesus Christ in which together we can know the height and the breadth and the depth and the width of the love of Jesus Christ that is beyond our ability to comprehend. There's a cross cure for our lovelessness, but we got to get the diagnosis right to get the cure right. And so let's look at it in the text. Um, again, we're starting out the practical section of chapter four through six. It's walk. It's a command. So we're commanded to walk in love and also in the text, walk in light and also in the text, walk in wisdom. I'm going to put them under the umbrella of, of love for, for the purposes of today. So what is the command? Walk. Walk means your habit of life 
your pattern of life, or your manner of life. And so what should be the characteristic manner of how you live your life? Love. What should be the habit and the pattern that people see in your normal interactions? Love. And I love the fact that it's a pattern of life and a habit of life versus an individual activity because you and I, in any individual moment, may be short and irritable. In any individual moment, may choose a loveless response. In any individual moment, let a casual word slip out of our mouth that's hurtful to someone else. What's the pattern? What's the habit of how you speak and the pattern and habit of how you treat people? Right? Walk in love. But please don't miss this. And I won't hit it a lot because if we had gone through Ephesians 1 through 3, you would have it. Don't miss this. The Bible is not commanding you, work yourself up and just go love. Go do love. Go do love. Work harder at love. What it's saying is, you have a new identity and a new nature as someone who is perfectly loved and adopted by the work of Jesus Christ. You have a new identity as a dearly loved child of God. And since that's true, this new nature expresses itself with the family characteristics. What are the family characteristics? Love. And it even does it in the text, doesn't it? Look at the first few verses before we move into the details. Imitate God, who is our Father. How? As Beloved children. Now our physical children pick up our mannerisms and our habits. They pick up words and they pick up the bad ones much easier than the good ones, right? And the bad habits much easier than the good habits. Like just naturally, they, they kind of grow into and start using some of the different things. They're like, oh yeah, that, that's, that's, my parents did that. And one of these days they're gonna joke about is you'll grow up and you'll get out of college and you'll get married and you'll have kids and all of a sudden your mom is gonna spit out of your mouth at your kids. And hopefully that's a moment where you realize, gosh, she was a pretty great lady, right? But it's going to happen. But just like physical kids become like physical parents for good or evil in a lot of ways, look what the command is, which is really the natural overflow. You are a perfectly dearly loved child. And the better you are loved, the more you become like the one who loves you. Right? The more you become like God the Father. And so imitate God the Father not just as a command, but as the natural overflow of somebody that's perfectly loved by God the Father. And so, how do I walk in love? I imitate the God who loves me. And if I'm loved perfectly, and I don't need you to fill up my love tank, and I don't need you to complete me, instead God has filled me up and God has completed me, I can go love now. I can walk as a pattern of love. And then look at the next, it doesn't even stop there. As Christ loved you, and he gave himself for you. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ, where a fragrant aroma and offering was made on your behalf to welcome you and make you a dearly loved child of God. And so if the cross of Christ saved you in love, and if the Father that you're connected to is love and you're loved, then don't work really hard to love so that you become a loving person. You are made love by the God of love. Just express that now. Conform your outsides to the new nature of your insides. He does it later with light, right? You were darkness. You are light. Now walk in light, right? And so identity drives action. Right? So look at it practically. What's the next word in the text? Verse three, but. So here's what I take that to mean. Walk in love but is a contrast word, right? So walk in love, but. What is the contrast to love? What is unloving and loveless? 
So what he is about to go through, and I hope this is helpful to kind of jar us awake because so many of these sins here we explain away or we minimize. I hope what it does is jar us in each of these areas that that ultimately what this word means or this sin means is I am unloving. I'm a loveless person if I do these things. And so walk in love, the opposite of walking in love is these qualities and traits. And so what's the first one? Sexual immorality and impurity. Any physical intimacy outside of the marriage relationship between a man and a woman is what we call sexual immorality. It's impurity. And you are steeped in a culture of hypersexuality. You're steeped in a culture that has made a radical shift from the past to the present. So no longer is physical intimacy something people do It is something that identifies who people are and their identity is now tied to their activity and proclivities of of sexual relationships. And so it makes sense why it's a personal attack to disagree with someone's sexuality because you're disagreeing with their identity, the way they define and see themselves in the world. How loveless is that and yet we've defined it as love. You're steeped in a culture that will sell you anything from perfume to cars to, I don't know, I hadn't seen a a good commercial lately, you know, because that's the benefit of getting to binge a streaming service. You don't have to do that, right? But in the old days, we had to watch three minutes of commercials in between our shows. But to sell you anything, what do they do? Well, you know what sells, right? And We've hypersexualized everything. It's the air we breathe in. And they're bad and we're good, right? No. No. Don't let sexual immorality be named among us. Uh, Researching this, roughly, or a a majority of Christians, Christians, say that physical intimacy outside of marriage in certain cases is acceptable. Most Christians don't think it's a problem. At least it's not a problem in all cases. And usually the cases that it's not a problem is theirs, right? And how does the Bible define that? It's loveless. Guys, if you're in a dating relationship and you're like, man, we love each other. If you have a physically impure relationship, you do not love each other. You don't. But yes, we do. We've said it. No. Love seeks the purity of the object of its love. Love seeks to build up the object of its love. Love seeks the good of the other for the object that is loved, or the person that is loved. And sexual immorality is the exact opposite. Look at the text. What it does is it takes my pleasure and my desires and makes it more important than your purity and your reputation. What it does is it takes my satisfaction and pleasure and makes it more important than your intimacy with Jesus Christ that this is going to take away from. And so it is a self-serving in the name of love, and it may be two self-serving people with two sets of desires and pleasures, neither of which is love. Because look at the diagnosis. Sexual immorality and impurity is a loveless way of living. It is the opposite of love, no matter how we define it. It's the opposite of love, no matter, look at later in the text, no matter how many empty words the culture tells us, it's not a big deal. I think what's happened is we've given so much ground. Hey, well, at least it isn't same-sex desires, and at least it isn't, you know, changing my gender. So, I mean, this has got to be a little sin compared to that stuff that's out there. 
Don't let sexual immorality and impurity take you. Another statistic I was reading is that we have an epidemic of porn within the church of Jesus Christ. It is estimated over, and I don't believe statistics, but, you know, roughly, over 60% of Christians regularly engage in watching it. 30% of Christian men are addicted. Intimacy with Jesus Christ, effect for the mission of God, being sent to the nations and being sent to our neighbors, all shrivel into nothing because we are controlled. Marriages filled with intimacy and love and proper expressions shriveled to nothing because we've allowed ourselves to be captured by what's on the screen of our computers and our phones. And it's loveless. It's loveless to God. It's loveless to others, to those we would be in relationship to. And there's one more area I want to mention, and I think it's one we overlook a lot when we think about sexual immorality and and impurity. If you are married, and your marriage relationship does not have regular physical intimacy attached to it, it's become loveless in some ways. Now, yes, there are age, and there's health, and there's season. There's stuff that can affect it, right? All things being equal, if your marriage lacks physical intimacy, it's got a love problem. I would even say it's probably got one of these words attached to it. There's an immorality attached to it. So how many of us are living in sexless marriages? How many of us are living in loveless marriages? How many of us are living in marriages that have no warmth, no temperature to them? They've just cooled down to nothing. Don't let it be named among you. Don't let it be named among you. The second one, covetousness. Covetousness. I'm going to put, uh, and look later, it says covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, I would say the sin beneath every sin in our lives is idolatry. We have misplaced worship down here that results in sinful thoughts, actions, and behaviors out there. And so ultimately, beneath every sin you ever commit is a misplaced worship. But rarely is that more evident than the area of money and stuff and possessions, right? Coveting is idolatry. And I'm going to put two cousins together to define coveting. Envy, I want what you have. Greed, I want to hoard what I have. And so envy and greed, coveting, right? There is a whole class of people that seek to gain their power and influence over you using envy. We can call it class warfare, We can call it, you know, a $500 billion tax increase uh, while we're facing 10% inflation. Now, I'm not worrying. I'm not trying to talk about tax policy or any of that stuff. But the point is, why is it okay to get this tax increase right now? Because the rich have to pay their fair share. Fair share. Now, again, I'm not going to argue tax policy, and I'm not going to argue if the rich pay too much or pay too little. The point is... How can they get something that's hurtful to people past? By making you envy what someone else has. I'm not content because Jeff Bezos has $100 billion. I don't give a rip about Jeff Bezos or what he has, right? I don't want what he has. I don't care what he has. It's beyond my comprehension what he has. Let's take the life God gave me because I have Jesus, right? But they've created a power system for themselves to look out for them and not you based on your envy of what someone else has Versus the life that you have. And that's why you have to get paid more per hour. 
doesn't matter if you work better. It doesn't matter if you have education or skills. You should just get paid more. Why? Because it's only fair. And we should rent control your rent. And we should rent control your, you know, we should cap what you pay for a house or whatever the thing is. Why? Because it's only fair. And a system of envy has been put over our culture to keep people in power. You know, they're bad. We're good, right? No. Because you pull up your Instagram feed, and that girl's got a beauty that you don't have, at least in your eyes. Oh, I wish I had it. That girl's got a popularity. That guy's got a popularity. That guy's got a, a Insta fame that, that, that I don't have, and I want it. And since I don't have it and I want it, how do I feel about me? I loathe myself because I'm not good enough or I'm not pretty enough or I'm not popular enough or I'm not rich enough. And look, they have this perfect Instagram-filtered family and I don't have that. Mine, I can't get to look the same way to take a picture, right? And, And they take all these great trips and I want that. Envy rises in the heart so naturally, and now we have access to images to, to provoke our envy of others and makes us hate ourselves or hate our lives or hate what we have and want what other people have. We can, we've always done it. Now it's just a little more accessible. We always have kind of looked around like, I want that relationship or I want that car or I want that house or I want that whatever. Envy and Greed. Right, that we, we hoard our families away from the world. We hoard our homes so that our tables are never filled with anybody but ours. And of course not. You can't touch my family and how busy we are and how many ball practices we go to and all of that. Right? It's ours. And no, you can't break into family time. And no, you can't break into the family's home because it's ours. And no, certainly not. I've lived to the very margin of my resources and the very margin of my time. Of course, you can't have any of what I have. I'm not being greedy. I just don't have enough. Why don't I have enough? Because I live at the very margins of everything that I have. Envy and greed. Lovelessness towards God. Because I don't embrace the sovereign, ordained life he's given me. Lovelessness to others because I won't release my lifetime and resources and family to love them. And then he keeps going. And he talks about sinful speech. Now, has anybody else just kind of diagnosed America and themselves at the same time? Sexual sin, coveting, and we can't control our stinking mouths. Okay, that's everybody. That's everything, right? Sinful speech. And in 429, it is, um, he talks about it as well. And if I could see the 29, I would would be able to get to it faster. No corrupting talk. In in chapter 5, it's filthy talk, foolish talk, and crude joking. They're all out of place for the Christian. And man, have you heard the way people talk about each other online? Now, the great theologian Mike Tyson, y'all are familiar with him? He had a quote recently. Too many of y'all on social media have gotten comfortable disrespecting people without getting punched in the face for it. This is wisdom according to Mike. Now, I don't recommend you punch anybody in the face. I think that's a bad thing and sinful thing. But the point is pretty important. We say things behind the anonymity of a keyboard that we would never sit across the table at lunch and say to another human being. 
We say it in a way we would never say it. We say words we would never say. But we have gotten comfortable behind a screen talking in ways that are totally inappropriate and totally unfitting and totally loveless towards other people. Now that's cultural, but I think Christians do the same thing. And it's stuff we would never do face to face. Maybe that's a good hint we shouldn't do it online either. But they're good and we're bad, right? Except for the acceptable sin of gossip. I'm not going to talk to you. Are you crazy? That's so awkward. But man, I will spend hour after hour talking about you to other people. And, and I'm sure I can say it in a way that feels kind of spiritual when I do it. Filthy talk. Sinful speech patterns. And man, like that idiot up there that's speaking every week, can you believe he said and can you believe he did what he did? And you can believe the decisions these guys in the back room, we don't smoke, so it's not smoke-filled, but can you believe what these guys in the back room decided? And we can criticize a leader without any problem whatsoever. We won't sit down with them and be like, hey, did you think about it this way? Or help me understand better what that decision was. Or we don't sit down with them and say, here's maybe another perspective that they might could grow and change from. But, man, we'll talk about them. And then we get to our marriages. And, ladies, you can say an awful lot with no words and your eyes. A good eye roll is worth a thousand words, right? And it's loveless speech when we demean and disrespect our spouse because we roll our eyes or we nag and nitpick. And, guys... That you would make a joke about your wife at a table of people that embarrasses her because you think you're funny and clever? That's sinful speech. It's crude joking. It has no place for us. And our communication is so destructive that you would speak that way with a group of guys because you think you're funny or in front of her to embarrass her? No. Sinful speech. I'm going to talk about one other area, guys. What is the main way men relate to men? Sarcasm. And 90% of the words men will ever hear in their life from another man is somebody picking at them to feel better about themselves. And I don't know if it's emotional immaturity. I don't know if it's, if it's just that's the only way we know how to relate to each other. Uh, I don't know what the reason is. But for generations, the only word men, men ever hear from men is sarcastic barbs after sarcastic barb after sarcastic barb, and that's as deep as we go, which means our soul from other men is filled up with words that tear us down, not words that fill us up with pride and belief and affirmation and forward movement and purpose. And with our tongues we destroy, and with our tongues we destroy, and with our tongues we destroy. And then, look at it says, like, you're deceived if you think you can be good with Jesus and have these sins pattern your life. But there's so many empty talk. Empty talk is a word for philosophy. There's so many philosophies out there that have crept into the church that said, it's okay, you know, if you love somebody, then the immorality issue can go to the side. It's okay if it's a little bit of negativity and a little bit of gossip or if you add prayer to it. It's okay, right, if you... If you you know, work hard and then make sure you spend and just kind of keep up with the people around you. Like, they're good people and you're good people and you work hard and they work hard and so it's okay if you keep up with them. And there's so many empty words and philosophies that have made our habits of life acceptable. Don't listen to them, it says. 
Because anything that draws you away from Christ and away from what he says is something that draws you into lovelessness and into unloving and ultimately into destruction. So when the Christian church affirms what the culture says is good and the Bible says is bad, what we do is we say we hate you because it's too uncomfortable to challenge your narrative and to challenge you because you might not like me. It's too uncomfortable to do that, so I hate you because I'll keep you from Christ, but at least you won't be mad that I think badly of the way you choose to live your life. But either God gets the right to define it or he doesn't. There's two more I'm going to hit very quickly. Waste your time, right? Positively, make the best use of your time to negatively waste your time. We have invented every day, we invent new ways to waste time in our lives. Binge and scroll, binge and scroll, binge and scroll, binge and scroll, binge and scroll. Can't have people at my house, I'm too busy. Binging and scrolling, binging and scrolling, binging and scrolling. I, I can't go have coffee with somebody and invest in their lives, I'm too busy. Ball practice and ball practice and trips and vacations and trips and vacations and binging and scrolling and binging and scrolling. I just have no time for people. Which leads me to what I think is the most missed time waster of the American life and the one I think that's probably the biggest one in your life too. An unexamined life that is busy to the margins. An unexamined life that is busy to the margins. I'm not doing any big sins. I'm always busy, I'm not, I don't waste my time, I'm always busy. But I never step back and say the priorities of my life are the kingdom of Jesus Christ to raise my kids in the nurture and admonition of the world. I never step back from my life to say how am I serving Jesus and his church and his people. I never step back and say what is my life prioritized around? So of course you can't break into my kids' ball practice or break into, yeah, we gotta miss about 30 Sundays a year for ball. And, you, know, you can't break into, yeah, I'm sorry, I just don't have time to serve because you know we take a trip a month and then sometimes two. No, like of course, that's just life. But is it life that's been examined by the priority of Jesus Christ so that it revolves around Jesus Christ and then is decided by Jesus Christ? We think just because we live our lives and it's busy that it's right because we're not doing the bad stuff. But to waste our time and to waste our life is the, only, is the most precious gift you've been given and you only get one. And the last one is we skip worship. Do you see that? Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs making melody in your heart to the Lord. You can't do that when you're sitting at home. I can't hear your worship and have my cold heart warmed. If you do that, we got to get to the positives. Let's go. That's enough beating up, right? Okay, Lord, what do you want from us? What does the cross of Jesus Christ empower from us? Stay tuned. Embrace the habits of living a life of love for God and others. Embrace the habits of living a life of love for God and love for others. So what is it that Christianity has to offer gender confusion? What is it Christianity has to offer a hypersexualized culture that sexualizes our kids and all the way up? What is it that Christianity has to offer all of these distorted sexualities that are against the, the scriptures and, and same-sex desires and others? What does Christianity have to offer? And what does Christianity have to offer tribalism that is constantly firing missiles at each other because they're so right and they're so wrong? What do we have to offer? What do we have to offer loveless, intimacyless marriages that are all over the place? What do we have to offer a single who is struggling to feel loved and accepted what does the church have to offer? What does God have to offer? Well, the remedy 
is the opposite of, uh, of the diagnosis. If the diagnosis is lovelessness, then the God who is love, the God who we imitate because we're loved, the God who has loved us and we have no lack, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I have no want. He's blessed me with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That God, what do I have to offer? I have to offer love. I have to offer the warmth of a positive marriage with a positive intimacy attached to it. I have to offer a gracious speech to a world that is filled with awful speech. I have to offer someone that loves people right where they are in all their confusion and disorderedness to show them what is right order and what is right from God. I have to offer people uh, a way of living my life that is generous and giving to others instead of hoarding to myself. I have a way to display something different. The church has love to offer. Because God is love, and it's by this that all people will know we're his disciples. That we love each other. That we love each other like this. And so what does love look like? Well, if sexual immorality is the, the loveless version, then what does love look like? It looks like purity. If you're single, what, is, what does it look like? It looks like a wholehearted devotion to running after Jesus Christ is what it looks like. That's what Paul says when he's talking about, like, if you're single, that's awesome. You have an undivided loyalty to Jesus. Run after him. If you're married, you have a divided concern because you've got to take care of your family and you have to serve Christ. So what does it look like? Purity? It looks like faithful running after Jesus Christ right where you are. One of the greatest things that I see that is so damaging to marriage and so damaging to, to believers is we think, and we just kind of sit on pause until we get married. And we think... Like there's this hole in me, there's this emptiness in me, I'm missing something, and if I just get married, I'll be full and I'll be complete. Do you know you're surrounded, hopefully not by too many, but you're surrounded by marriages who are thinking, if I could just be apart from this person, I'd be full and I'd be complete. The weight of the emptiness of your soul will crush the person that you put it on top of, unless that person is Jesus Christ. And so don't come to marriage as a half a person thinking this person's going to complete me. Come to marriage, and in the meantime, what you're doing in purity is preparing yourself to be a whole and full person in Jesus so that you bring a whole and full person into a marriage relationship so that two whole and full people can serve Christ together in a way that multiplies. So are you passionately following after Jesus, singles? Are you creating a stability and a wholeness in Christ right now, singles? And then, what else does sexual immorality, what does it look like on the positive? To the married people here, it looks like a positive sexuality. Sex is a good and pleasurable gift from the good hand of a good God. And if you have any other view of that within your marriage relationship, or any other view of that, of what marriage should be, then conform it to the image of Christ and what God says instead of your own. And so what would I say if it's a good and pleasurable gift from the good hand of a good God? Here are the principles I think are true. And 1 Corinthians 7 is one of the places you can go to as well as others. Within your marriage relationship, based on season of life and health and other things, it should be frequent in your life. If it's not frequent, you need to evaluate love. It should be consistent in your marital life. And it shouldn't disappear. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 says, right? You shouldn't stop except for for a short season defined for the purpose of seeking Christ and it should be mutually desired. And so those, that's, that's how I would look at and check my physical relationship within my marriage. Is it consistent? 
Is it frequent as defined by your life circumstances? Is it mutually desired or is it like, you know, kind of the, the tool that's used to like if you behave really well kind of thing? No, both, right? The way we talk about it in our premarital counseling is that physical intimacy is so often a thermometer for the broader relationship people live in. Meaning, if outside of the bedroom there's connection and there's talking and you're growing and you're enjoying each other and your marriage is going well, usually inside takes care of itself and things go great. But if you see like there's a problem in our bedroom, you know what it's telling you guys? There's a problem in your relationship. There's something outside the, outside the bedroom that is broken and needs to be grown in care and intimacy and connection. And you need to look at it. And you need to get it right because if you don't, there's, this is telling you there's a problem. The thermometer is saying there's a problem. All right. You all good? I guess not. Okay, that's all right. It's okay. <laughs> I'll be back next week. Hopefully you will be too. Uh, coveting. How do we remedy coveting? Look at what it says in the text. Be thankful. Thankfulness says there's a sovereign God who's ordained the life that he's given me, and I'm looking at my life, and I have Jesus in my life. Jeff did a great job at that last week, right? And when he talked about gratitude, he did a great job of talking about contentment. If I look at I get Jesus. If I have Jesus, I have everything. And so if I have Jesus and I have everything, and this is the life he's given me, then I can be thankful. Look at verse 20. In all ways and in everything. Give thanks in all circumstances, for it's God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I can live in gratitude for having Jesus, and I can live in gratitude for the life he gave me, instead of envying the life he gave someone else. And your satisfaction with life will vastly multiply if you look at what you have in Jesus and what you have in the life he's given you versus what other people have. It will multiply greatly. How do I love God? I'm thankful for the life he gave me. And by the way, he did not just give you Jesus, did he? If you're sitting here today, you live in America. If you're sitting here today, you're either in university or you probably have a job. If you go to the university, there are people all over this world that would cut their arm off to go to the classes you go to, to unlock the career options that have unlocked for you. If you're sitting here today with a job that pays your bills and gives you, you know, a decent house and a decent car, there are people all over the planet that would cut both arms off to have what you have. There's people all over this country that would feel the same. I have Jesus, so I have everything, and then I have the life he gave me. And if I look at the goodness of Jesus and the goodness he's given me in this life, I can be thankful instead of envious. And if I'm thankful instead of envious, I don't have to live to the margins. I can start living in a way that gives margin for generosity. And I can give my life and my time and my table to other people. And as I do that, a life of radical thanksgiving instead of radical envy they speak against each other. In a life of radical generosity and a culture of radical greed, they speak against each other of the realities of Christ. The next one, godly speech. Y'all just can't give me weeks off. because got lots of Godly speech. Three principles are given in 429. It's a great filter to run your communication through. Does it build up? Is it timely, the right time and place? Does it bring grace to the situation? 
right? And so does it done from a gracious heart with a gracious spirit to breathe grace into the situation? So you can think about that on, online right before I post, right? Is this going to add to and contribute to a good discussion or tear down? Is this the right time and place to discuss these things? Online, probably not. But if it is, okay. Am I going to bring a graciousness to this that is totally missing? And then what about our marriages? Or no, what about gossip? Right? Are you talking to your girlfriends about your husband or some other person in the church? And like, man, I want to build them up. I want people to see them as better after we have this conversation. Good filter to run it through. Is this the right time and place? Well, if it's not the person that you have a problem with, it's probably not the right time, and it's probably not the right place, probably. Do I have a gracious spirit towards the person I'm about to talk about? Do I want to add grace into their life or no? And then think about your marriage relationship, whether it's no communication when there should be, whether it's short and irritable communication, whether it's eye-rolling and belittling and diminishing, whether it's sarcastic joking, whatever the... The, the, the speech patterns of your marriage are. Run the filter of, am I building my spouse up with my words? Not getting a stupid laugh at a table. Come on. Is this the right time and place? Amy does a great job with this in our premarital counseling that she brings up. Like, knowing the right time to have an important conversation with your spouse is so important. Right? Have you picked a, ch- a time and a place that it has the most chance of being heard and received? 8.30 when you're supposed to be somewhere at 8.40 is not a good time or place. 5.30 after a long stressful day at work where everything went wrong and you just commuted home. Probably not the great time. So can you find a time and a place to have important discussions within your family to give it the best chance to be heard? Timely. Does it give Grace. Is what I'm about to say to and about my spouse going <clears> to <throat> come from a gracious heart and infuse grace into the situation that we're a part of? What a great filter for communication. Now, guys, I'm going to say it, and you guys can wait or you can leave. If guys spend the vast majority of their life having communication from other men that is sarcastic and belittling to see who can one-up each other, I would say most men, and probably most men sitting in this church right now, have never had a man that was either a, a spiritual peer or someone that was above them that they respected consistently speak words of affirmation into their life. Consistently speak words of, I'm proud of you. Consistently speak words of, I love you. Consistently speak words of, I think that, that God is all over your life. I see God working in your life. They've never had men who they respect and whoever them go into their life and say, you can do this and I believe in you and, and, and God is in your life and God is up to good stuff in your life and don't quit and keep going and you can do it. And most of us live with a soul that the words from other men have done far more to tear us down than they ever have to build us into what God would have us to be. And so what if as men we committed to the kind of speech that said, I'm going to build the men up around me. I'm going to be the breath of life to the men around me. And I don't care how awkward it is. I don't care how embarrassing it is. I don't care if I don't know this younger guy because old people, it's your job to go talk to young people as opposed to young people's job to have to seek you out. Now, yes, it's mutual, but guys, grow up a little bit. Awkward's on us, not them, okay? Am I going to commit to speaking to other men in a way that makes them better and builds them up? It doesn't mean it's always positive. It means it's designed to build them up. 
Am I gonna speak to other men at the right times and places? Am I gonna speak to other men in a way that fills their life with grace? It's loving, which means it's like your God and Father. It's loving, it means it's like Jesus Christ. If you decide and commit to be a man who speaks to other men this way and not in the other way. And so let me challenge you, man up. It's not man up to be sarcastic and to be more clever than other people. It's man up when you speak life and grace and building into other men. Y'all could have amen that. Just saying. Been very affirming. No, just kidding. All right. Godly speech. And then last two, best use of your time. In a world of wasted time, you get one life. And it goes fast. You get one chance at raising your kids. And you don't get a do-over. Right, we're sitting at the beach the other day and hear all these little girls yelling and squealing uh, with their dad there on the beach. And it's like for a second you turn around and think, oh, that's mine. And then I turn them back and I've got one going to senior year of high school and my youngest one going into middle school. Like, it's gone. It, or, I mean, it's not gone, but it goes that fast. Like, that was just us last year at the beach. And now this is where we are. It goes so fast, you don't get a second chance. Now, yes, mercy is new every morning. Don't quit, but it goes fast. You get one chance to do this marriage. You get one chance to make a difference in the people that are sitting beside you right now. You get one chance to make a difference in this world, and it's a short one. The night comes when no man can work. And so don't waste your life. Make the best use of your time. You are in an evil age, always have been. What kind of difference will you make with your one little life that goes so fast, with your one little family that goes so fast, with your one little marriage that goes so fast, and with the one set of people that are all around you that it goes so fast? We're about to hit 10 years at Fletcher this month. I'm sorry, tomorrow's month. And it's like yesterday. Where'd it go? Some of y'all have gotten a little grayer over that 10-year period. A lot of you are brand new over a couple-year period. It goes just that fast. Make the best use of your time to make the most impact, to bear the most fruit for the glory of God and the, and the name of Jesus Christ as you possibly can. You only get one shot. And that's what's going to be what matters. And the last one is very simple. Worship. <laughs> Gather together to declare the praises of God, to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and make a melody in your heart to the Lord. How do I love you as we gather? I sing with all my heart and an awful voice. How do you love your neighbor as we gather? You sing with all your heart, no matter what your voice sounds like. How do you love your neighbor? You listen to the word with active intensity and do stuff about it. How do you love your neighbor as you gather? A million other ways. We gather to speak to one another. and so on. How do you love God in the worship service? You sing from your heart with all your might the great praises of God. What's the positive Christian life to live? Not the negative to avoid, the positive Christian life to live. Purity and intimacy. Purity as singles and intimacy. What is the life that you have been given to live? It is a life of radical gratitude and radical generosity and a culture that's not. What is the life that you've been given to live because God loves you so perfectly and has made you a new person? What is the life you've been given to live? A speech that makes the world, the people around you better in Jesus. 
what is the life that God has given you to live? What is walking in love look like? It looks like using every ounce of your life and every ounce of your strength to make a difference in the people that God's given you to make a difference in. That's what it looks like. You are so amazingly, incredibly, and perfectly loved. Walk in love. Be who you are. A few practical things as we, as we wrap up. What loveless habits show up in your life and relationships most consistently? What loveless habits show up in your life and relationships most consistently? Is it your speech patterns? Is it the way you talk about people? Is there some immoralities in your life that you've kind of justified and let yourself convince is okay? You're like, man, we're doing all the good stuff and we're part of a campus ministry and, and, and yeah, we're kind of sleeping together and that's cool because that's not a big deal. But man, we're, we're doing the Jesus thing. Like, what's the stuff that's going on in your life? Have you let your marriage drift into this roommate logistical planning mode? What, what are those habits that have slipped into your life that, that would be confronted? And then what, in its place, what loving demand could your relationships most use right now? What loving demand from this text could your relationship most benefit from now? Would it be speaking words that build up and give life? Would it be pursuing intimacy again with your spouse? What would it be if you had to say, like, this is the thing that my relationship could really flourish, my relationships, plural, could really flourish on if these things started happening? What's, what's the one or two that you need to focus on for that? These are great microgroup discussions to, to talk about for accountability and for encouragement. And then what changes in speech habits could most benefit your relationships? You do almost nothing as much as talk. So what speech pattern changes for your friendships, for your roommates, for your spouses, for your kids, for whatever, for your workplace? What speech pattern changes could most be used right now? And men, I'm looking at you first. I just really challenge you because that's what's been on my heart as I've been preparing this message. I want to really challenge you to be men who speak to men life. Men who speak to men, grace. Men who speak to men to be all that God's called them to be and you know they can be because the Spirit's at work in their life. Be those kind of men. Be those kind of men. You're loved. Your tank is full. Walk in love. Let's pray. So Father, in the name of Jesus, grant us to know the love of Jesus that is beyond our ability to know because its height and its breadth and its depth are so vast. Grant us to be people that do that together. And Lord, help us to know we're loved so much that we actually radically love each other. And we radically love a world that needs to see love. and needs to know we belong to him because so many times we don't look like it. They need to know we belong to you because we love each other like that. And so, Father, we pray, do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as we come to our time of invitation, the beautiful thing of the gospel is this. It's not that you love God. It's not that you love God first. It's that God loved you and sent his son, Jesus Christ. Has that ever become a reality in your life? Have you ever been convicted of your sin and that sin separates you from God? And no matter how hard you try, you can't overcome the loveless gap. But God loved you. God loved the world and he sent his son to die on a cross, to live a perfect life, die on a cross and rise from the dead. 
Have you ever been convicted of your sin? Have you ever been shown that Jesus lived and died and rose again to rescue you, to save you just where you are? And have you ever repented of your sin and put your faith in Jesus? Have you ever turned from you and turned towards him in faith? If you need to do that, let's pray together. You can fill out the white sheet in your bulletin. We'd love to talk more about that if you have questions. But if the Spirit is prompting your heart, don't turn away from that. Let him welcome you into the family of God.